Good morning, friends. There are moments in which we make a choice. We make a decision that alters our life. There are moments when a people or a nation make a choice that alters history, alters their history. When the colonies, the American colonies, made a choice to throw off the yoke of the British Empire, that decision altered world history. One could argue it altered the course of our planet. It was a seismic shift in human affairs. As it turns out, the Bible is a great, have you heard the term meta-narrative? Big story, all-encompassing story that includes within it particular stories of men and women, boys and girls, peoples and nations who made choices. And that meta-narrative gives meaning to all of those particular stories. It's a grand story. It's a story of redemption. It's the story of how a sovereign God who created everything lovingly rescued and redeemed the capstone of his creation, namely, you and me, human beings, and the environment. Are we doing better? How's this? All right. I'll not repeat what I said. (laughs) Just pretend that you heard it. The Bible is full of these wonderful stories that give these moments of decision. I'd like to direct your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Would you turn to that if you have your Bibles? And I want to talk a bit about one of those decisive moments in Israel. Boy, I do sound better on uh, live sound, don't I? Wow, this is great. 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'll not read all of it, but I want to at least give you uh, the introduction here. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. 
And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And now I skip down to verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Well, there is a decisive moment in the history of Israel. What's going on, friends, is that the elders have come and they are demanding a new form of government. The old tribal federation has proven to be a failure and they want to shift to monarchy. You well know that a shift in the form of government is huge. Never in the history of human beings have you uh, a situation in which a, the, the apportionment, the exercise, and the transfer of power is changed without all sorts of resistance, many repercussions. This is major. Which, of course, prompts a question. Why are they demanding a change in the form of government? Which brings us in to the heart of this story. When you think about it, uh, the, the past, Israel's past, has been characterized by tribal federation. You know the story. The 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's 12 sons. These 12 tribes after entering into the land of Canaan, are apportioned sections of this great land. The land of Canaan, land called Palestine, called the Holy Land, the land of Israel, and so on. Power was exercised by elders. These are respected leaders, family leaders, who make the decisions affecting their tribe in their part of this land. But that hasn't worked well for Israel. Now what they're suggesting is we need to transfer power to a king. In other words, move toward a central government. Where did that central government move? No longer will it be exercised out there in the tribe of Issachar, Naphtali, and uh, the tribe of Simeon in the south, but rather it will go to, as you see on the slide, Jerusalem the Golden, here seen in the morning sun. And in the center of the picture, the Golden Dome, the Dome of the Rock, standing right where the first and the second temple stood. This city became the center of power, both of political and religious power. 
Everything gravitated toward Jerusalem. And there the decisions were made by the king, by his advisors, by a select group of leaders. Now there's an upside and there's a downside to monarchy. The upside is it's a relatively efficient exercise of power. And if intended for the public good, it can be beneficial. The downside is it certainly limits input. And of course, it won't tolerate dissent. On the part of the citizens, it requires absolute loyalty and commitment. As you know, it's only as good as the one at the top, right? If that person and that small group of advisors are people of spiritual insight, godly character, God's blessings can be experienced. But of course, you know the flip side of that. Something has happened. You know, you don't switch horses in the middle of the creek unless you have to. And those folks, those elders, believe we have come to the place where we have to switch horses. It's now or never. Another center of power. You know the story that the United Kingdom had a split. The northern tribes went their own way, and in the middle of this slide is the ancient hill of Shemer, which Omri purchased and built his new capital, Samaria. And then later, his son Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel put a splendid palace and fortress on the summit of that hill, and that became the center of power for the northern tribes. So we have two rival centers of power, Jerusalem in the south and Samaria in the north. Now we come back to our story of Samuel and his two sons who are seen here flanking him. The text indicates that there is a major issue, a disappointment, let's put it that way. They're disappointed in the current leadership. They want something new. It is not Samuel himself. He is not the real source of the disappointment. In fact, Samuel had been stellar. He had unselfishly and spiritually guided this people through some very major crises. So he had not failed the people at all. In fact, if you go over to chapter 12, and I do invite you to do so, here's Samuel's farewell speech. And it's very clear that the people are not complaining about him personally. He asked them if he has cheated anyone. Have I taken your ox? Have I uh, infringed upon your rights? And they say resoundingly, no, you have not cheated us. You have not oppressed us. You've not taken anything from anyone's hands. And they all agreed to that. High praise indeed. Don't you wish all of our politicians could get an endorsement like that? Yeah. So it isn't, it isn't Samuel, but now coming back to 1 Samuel 8, it's Sam's sons. They're the problem. The text doesn't mince words about these youngsters. It says they did not follow his ways. It says they turned aside after dishonest gain. Well, fancy that. Politicians 
trying to make money while they're in office. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Oh. Oh. The writer of Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, and we know it. These boys, Joel and Abijah, Joel and Aviah, their names, they didn't live up to their names. Joel means the Lord is God. If only he had lived up to that. Aviah, Abijah, my father is the Lord. I'll borrow a word from an American TV show. The word is, they were dipsticks. Anybody remember that? Okay. Roscoe P. Coltrane. Okay. Dukes of Hazard. There you go. These boys were dipsticks. It says that they accepted bribes and they perverted justice. They rendered, they made decisions in favor of their friends who, of course, would reward them. You know, it's the old, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. How sad. The elders are alarmed at the prospect of these two boys continuing. You see, in ancient Israel, the way the federation had worked was that the Holy Spirit would come upon an individual. And it was very obvious that the Spirit had come upon this person. They were endowed with power, with charisma, and people followed them. The judges followed in succession. Samuel had been called by the Spirit. Sam's sons had not. And it was obvious. They departed from his ways. This story of Sam and his sons is reminiscent. In fact, it's ironic. Samuel himself grew up in a family. Remember Eli, the high priest? He had two boys, Hophni and Phineas, and they were dipsticks too. In fact, uh, they were awful dipsticks. Back in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, think of it. They're, they're priests, mind you. It says they had no regard for the Lord. Astounding. In verse 17, it says they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. And then they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of the Lord. All of this sounds distressingly contemporary, doesn't it? I must say, and I hope I don't offend you, but Henry Kissinger is reported to have said, political power is the strongest aphrodisiac known to human beings. I suspect he's right. It happens all the time, sadly. And it happened in ancient Israel. Hophni and Phinehas, Joel and Abijah are disappointments, major disappointments. May I just for a moment say something? Parents and grandparents, we wish we could pass our faith on to our kids and grandkids, don't we? If we could, we would. But we know it doesn't work that way, and Scripture doesn't teach that. It can't be bequeathed. It has to be born, doesn't it? born of the Spirit. As parents and grandparents, the thing we must do is travail in prayer for our kids and our grandkids. Sometimes it's, it's heartbreaking, but, you know, you can't just give it to them and say, there, run with it. They have to embrace it. Well, that's another sermon for three or four more days. I move on. Back to 1 Samuel 
chapter 8. Disappointment with the current leadership. There is another reason behind the scenes implied here in this text is another reason why the elders make the switch. It's in verse 20. What do they want this king to do? And the answer, they want this king to lead them in battle, which implies there is an enemy out there. And indeed, there is a dangerous enemy out there. It's the most formidable foe the Hebrews have faced yet. They're called the Philistines. And these folks are threatening to control the whole country. Now, we see on this little map here an outline of the land of Israel. On the right is a picture uh, uh, on, the, on a uh, tomb. On a, uh, in, it's a picture of Philistine, is what I'm trying to say. And on the, the left there, you see some cities along the coast of Palestine. And these are the main cities the Philistines established, a kind of Philistine pentapolis. There were five of them, three of which you heard in the news this last summer. Gaza, that you heard about that. Ashkelon, Ashdod. Inland was Ekron and Gath. Gath was the home of the great giant, Goliath, whom David eventually kills. These folks have come, and who are they? Well, they're refugees. In some respects, their history is like that of uh, ancient Israel. They've been driven out of their country. They're Greeks. They're from the Aegean. And uh, Europeans drove them out of their homeland, and they took their longboats and went to the eastern Mediterranean, and one group of them, one tribe, and by the way, they were organized in tribes, just like the Hebrews, were called the Philistines. And they showed up on the coast of what we call today Israel. They established a beachhead, and then they began to probe inland, and because, well, try to imagine, if you're a Philistine living down on the beach, you're not going to feel real secure when you look up on the hills above you and realize that there are Hebrews up there. And so what the Philistines gradually began to do was try to move up and dominate the whole country, get the high ground, so to speak. And thus we have set up the dynamics for a power struggle, a bitter, long struggle to control the land of Canaan. The Philistines come to this conflict with some pronounced advantages. For one, these folks come from a military tradition. Fathers raised their sons to handle the spear, the bow, the sword. These young men are trained in strategy and tactics of warfare from just little guys. The Hebrews, in contrast, train their sons to uh, take care of animals, to raise crops. They're farmers and herdsmen. When you put... uh, people with those differing kinds of backgrounds together, advantage obviously goes to the Philistines. They have a distinct advantage because this is what they live and die for. By the way, just as a footnote, I know that Shane is uh, interested in the classics. Uh, The Iliad pictures this perfectly. The Greek tribes select Agamemnon 
as their leader. These Philistines, in time of war, select one of their five city leaders, really a dictator, and he becomes commander-in-chief, and they follow suit behind him. In other words, they can really mobilize quickly. Secondly, these folks have a technological edge. To put it in sort of modern terms, state-of-the-art weaponry and armor for that time. They've mastered the secret of iron, and iron is a harder metal than bronze, superior. And uh, the Philistines have learned that, and they have a monopoly on it. And that gives them a decide. They have the chariot, which is the equivalent of a modern battle tank. The Hebrews have no chariots. They have no swords and spears to speak of. All they have are farm implements, hoes and mattocks, axes. In fact, there is a rather startling text here. I'll have you turn over to 1 Samuel 13. Uh, this gives you a nice picture of how mismatched the Philistines and the Hebrews are at this point. So if you're in 1 Samuel 13, starting at verse 19, it says, Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines had said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattoxes, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So, on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Can you imagine a citizen army without adequate weapons? Advantage, obviously, goes to the Philistines. I must advert to a little point here. The King James Version on which I was reared gives verse 19 this way. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. And I am happy to say this morning, in my situation, I not only found a smith, I married her. And we have celebrated now, we'll celebrate 50 years. All right. But in Samuel's day, no smith could be found. Now, back to Samuel 8 here. This is a desperate situation, and the last point I wanted to make was simply this, that I might not make it. There it is. Because of their centralized power, the Philistines quickly mobilize and put their army in the field. The federation, the tribal federation, is unwieldy, slow, and usually uncooperative. In the book of Judges, we read several times that tribes unaffected didn't even lift a finger when there's a crisis. So how in the world can they deal with this unified, powerful, militarily advanced state? And the answer is they were in desperate straits. And that is, in many ways, the background of this moment. 
The Israelites must make a decision. The elders know it, and it has to be done sooner rather than later. They are in danger of defeat. May I just advert just for a moment another point, how sad it is that in our own day, in a strange twist, strange ironic twist, we have the same piece of real estate being contested by Palestinians and Israelis. And the stakes are high once again. Um, There are undeniable links biologically and historically between the Palestinians and the Philistines. In fact, the word Palestine is a corruption of Philistine. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I don't want to give the wrong impression. The Palestinians are not direct descendants of the Philistines, nor are the Israelis direct descendants of the Hebrews. Like almost all of us here, we're mutts, right? Mixed, ethnically mixed. So it is with today the Palestinians and the Israelis, a a very mixed group. But still, having said that, there are clear biological, historical connections, and they are distinct ethnic communities. And alas, they are locked up in this um, winner-take-all crisis. The dilemma of the Hebrews is basically how can we survive? So they go to kingship, trying to get a central government and, of course, to raise an army to face these formidable foes. To do that, (laughs) what does it take? We Americans know what it takes. Taxes. And that's what has to be laid upon ancient Israel. Mandatory draft and mandatory taxes, the only way they can meet this crisis. That's what they do. Samuel warns them. Oh, you'll appoint a king, won't you? But in the day you appoint the king, guess what he will do? And I didn't read this portion from 1 Samuel 8, but if you begin here in verse 8 or 9, rather, and following, here's what he will do. He will, notice the key words, he will take... He will take, he will take, of course he will take. The United States of America spent somewhere in the neighborhood of $700 billion last year on defense, which just happens to be more than the next eight countries combined. And we're not sure it's even that. It's probably more than that. But be that as it may, 20% of our budget. The ancient Israelites began to face reality. Now, please, again, don't misunderstand me. Did the Hebrews have an alternative? The Federation was a failure. And in order to survive, it's not likely any other choice was open. Sometimes you bite the bullet, don't you? And uh, ancient Israel did so. But there were times when the king was oppressive. And he laid heavier burdens upon them. And it became intolerable. Well, I've quite gone beyond the time on that. Let me move forward. You know where this story goes. What happens is that the Lord raises up David, King David, and under him, ancient Israel became the most powerful state in the Middle East and dominated that land that we call the Holy Land today. 
The Hebrews asked, the elders asked, give us a king like all the other kings. Question, so what were these other kings like? Well, let's go back to the Egyptians. That's where the Hebrews began their story. This is a death mask of Tutankhamun. We'll let him be representative. Ideology in Egypt said that the pharaoh is actually the incarnation of the god Amun-Re. He's a god. Which means that what he says is God's word. And who would dare contradict or refuse a god? It's virtual dictatorship. That was the pattern in Egypt. Is it any better when we get to the land of Assyria or Mesopotamia? And it has worked fine until now. I'll just have to tell you what it is. The Assyrians had a form of kingship that was known as adoptive. When the king ascended the throne, he became semi-divine. The result is much the same as in Egypt. Namely, there it is, one of the Assyrian kings. He became a virtual dictator. He and his elite group of advisors. And this is what Samuel is warning the Hebrews about. Are you sure you want a king like the other nations? The answer is not likely. What is the divine plan for kingship? The Lord sets in motion and actually uses this request to push forward the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to be headed up by a great king. And that great king, and now, of course, we're reading the rest of the story, is the Lord Jesus. Starting in 1 Samuel 8, we're going to hear some whispers of kingship. We're going to hear whispers of Jesus, that great king, that greater son of David who will come. I wanted to share with you this report card for the um, Hebrew kings. During the United Monarchy, we had uh, David, we had Saul, David, and Solomon. Saul ended in disaster. David had a meltdown, and Solomon, reputed to be the wisest man, displayed utter folly and sowed the seeds of apostasy. Then later in the divided kingdom, sorry, I went too fast. What was the report card for the divided kingdom? <laughs> Not one. Not even one is called a good king. And in the kings of Judah, well, we had three who were called the best, but remember, best in comparison to the rest. We had um, a couple who were good, and then we had all the rest of them who were either bad and wicked or the worst. Bottom line, friends, this is not a good report card. Human kingship was not a very successful experiment. So now, in the United States of America, we have a representative democracy. I think that's the best that we can do as human beings. It provides enough checks and balances, but would you agree with me? Representative democracy requires commitment. It requires mutual understanding. It requires respect. It, re it requires of us that we, in short, work for the common good. And that is fragile and must constantly 
be in the forefront. So representative democracy is probably the best we can hope for under our fallen circumstances. But there is something better to which I will quickly go because time is getting away. I just wanted you to be reminded of this wonderful statement, the preamble to our Constitution. Those are noble, wonderful ideals and, in my opinion, can never be fully realized until we have a theological commitment, a theological foundation. Without that, I'm afraid that preamble will go unfulfilled. And then I wanted you to look at a prophet. Well, here is a forward look. The whispers of Jesus are going to become one day a deafening roar when we all gather around the Lamb. I love that song we sang this morning. Yes, worthy is the Lamb. And we have this sevenfold description in Revelation 5 to this wonderful Lamb who gives his life for his sheep. And when he reigns, then we will have truly justice and righteousness and holiness. Book of the Bible, the the meta narrative moves us toward this dramatic moment. I'll leave that up there and, and conclude here. I want to fast forward the tape for just a moment. I fast forward the tape to the year 30 AD. We're in the Lenten season now. Easter's around the corner. About a thousand years after the elders requested a king, Jewish leaders met at the palace of Pontius Pilate. And they had to make a choice. And they did make a choice. Their choice was Barabbas, who was accused of being a terrorist, and almost certainly was, and this man Jesus, who's accused of being a traitor, and he certainly was not. And the Jewish leaders said, we want Barabbas. And they said, we have no king except Caesar. Fateful words. Caesar they got. And 40 years later, the temple was burned to the ground. Tens of thousands of Jews were killed by Caesar's troops. In the book of Psalms, there is this passage that says, The Lord gave them their request, but sent a wasting of the soul. And that's what happened to the Jewish leadership. So, friends, now we bring this to our decision, our time. As you look back on the decision that the elders faced in the days of Samuel and the religious leaders faced in the days of Jesus, they said, uh, we want a king. The Hebrews said, like all the other kings, that's what they got. That's what they got. And the Lord sent a wasting of the soul. The religious leaders in Jesus say, we have Caesar, and he's the only king that we want. And that's what they got. And they got destruction and a wasting of the soul. So I'm just asking you this morning, who's on the throne of your life? King Jesus wants to be there. And if he is, he will give you blessing. You have to make the decision. You see, we come to the moment of decision. 
I'm assuming that most of you have made that decision. I don't know your hearts. But if you haven't really committed your life to Christ, now's the time. And that decision will change your life. It may be that you're not walking with the Lord. You need to abdicate, get off the throne, and invite the Lord Jesus to be back where he should be, King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is a decision you can make right now. So I'm going to ask you for just a few moments in silence to make that decision if it needs to be made. And then after we've done that, we'll sing a hymn together and we'll reaffirm our commitment to the Lord Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's just be, pray silently for a moment. Thank you, Lord Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Today we reaffirm our commitment to you and your great kingdom. May it come speedily and in our day. Amen. Let's sing together and give affirmation to our reaffirmation.